This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 63, Persians, Plague, and Priorities. Thanks for listening in. So last time out, we took a look at how, after a couple of decades of peace, the major European powers used the death of Augustus II of Poland in 1733 to revert to type and get themselves embroiled in the war of the Polish succession. This relatively short conflict, which ended in 1736, saw the preferred candidate of Austria, Russia and Prussia, Augustus III, take over as the new king of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Russia's army under Munich and Lacey performed well, albeit against limited opposition. And we finished off by taking a look at the Empress Anna's decision to choose her niece, Anna Leopoldovna, as her successor, which left Elizabeth Petrovna, Peter the Great's daughter, sidelined again and having to tread somewhat carefully. This week we'll be concentrating on two major themes. On the home front, we'll be covering a number of different initiatives as Anna, when she wasn't busy being entertained, allegedly, attempted to set the priority and strategic direction for her reign in place. Whilst in the field of foreign affairs, we'll be getting to grips with how Russia dealt with its two largest southern neighbours, Persia and the Ottoman Empire. And with one of them, it would be use of tact and diplomacy. And with the other, it would would use good old-fashioned military force. And then at the end, a bit of tact and diplomacy. Okay, that's the intro done. No messages this week, so let's crack on with some history of Russia. And we'll start off 
with Persia. So as mentioned in a couple of previous episodes, by the early 1720s, the Safavid Persian Empire was in decline, and the Ottoman Empire, to its immediate west, was sniffing around, hoping to take advantage of the situation and snaffle up some more territory. When news of this had reached Peter the Great, he decided to get in on the act for two reasons. One, to grab some Persian territory of his own and expand Russia's sphere of influence into the Caucasus and the Caspian regions. And two, stop the Ottomans from doing the same and getting there first. And so between 1722 and 1723, Russia and Persia fought a short war, which Russia won. And as part of the resultant peace treaty, Persia was forced to cede the four northern Persian provinces of Gilan, Shirvan, Mazandaran and Astabad, plus the cities of Baku in Azerbaijan and Derbent in Dagestan. Now Peter was initially very pleased with his new acquisitions and plans were drawn up to secure and settle all of the regions with Russian and Armenian Christians and, officially, bind the provinces of Gilan and Mazandaran, which were located on the southern shore of the Caspian Sea, to the Russian Empire. But whilst this looked great on paper, there were a number of reasons why the reality soon proved to be anything but. The costs and effort involved were far greater than had been originally anticipated, and the distance between St Petersburg and the Caspian made communication slow and difficult. The Ottomans, uncertain of Russia's intentions, moved a large number of troops eastwards and northwards to protect their border regions, which in turn made both Russia and Persia do the same, and soon all three were on a war footing. Thousands of Persian farmers and peasants fled the region before the Christian settlers arrived, with the result that trade and agriculture, and in particular the lucrative silk farming industry, collapsed. And so the reality was that the new lands, rather than having a positive impact, had started to become something of a burden, or a rather large white elephant. Now by the time that Peter died in 1725, pretty much everyone was aware of this and Osterman, who knew a thing or two about foreign affairs, drew up plans to resolve the situation, which were to get the provinces and cities back into Persian hands and get a new trade agreement in place toot sweet. The problem was that Osterman couldn't persuade either Catherine I, Peter II or Menshikov to do anything about the situation. However, by the early 1730s, the political and military landscapes had changed and Osterman found that when he raised the subject with Anna, she was prepared to listen. So what had changed? Well, between 1730 and 1735, a re-energised Persia and the Ottoman Empire were at war with each other. And as we know, between 1733 and 1735, Russia's focus was to its west with the war of the Polish succession. And so Osterman, with Anna's support, opened negotiations with the Persians, and his pitch went something like this. We'll give you your lands back, and then we want to re-establish trade between ourselves. In return, whilst we're busy in Poland, we'd like you, if you can, 
to keep the Ottomans on the back foot. And then once we're not so busy, we'll come and sort out any remaining problems with the Turks. And the Persians, recognising a good deal when they saw one, said, yeah, okay then, why not? Now, obviously, as with most international negotiations, this diplomatic wrangling was a bit more complex and took place over a longer period of time, with plenty of toing and froing. But essentially, what I've outlined is the gist of what Osterman suggested, and, over time, what actually happened. The Persians either did their best or did as much as they were ever going to, but one thing that they weren't in a position to stop, due to basic geography, were a series of incursions by those pesky allies of the Ottomans, the Crimean Tatars, who, whilst Russia's back was turned, had undertaken several raids into southern Russian territory, in and around modern-day Ukraine. In late 1735, with things sewn up in Poland, an emboldened Anna and Osterman decided that now was the time to do something about the Crimean Tatars and their Ottoman overlords, and over the winter they made plans to send not one, but two armies southwards. The Russian Dnieper army, consisting of around 60,000 troops, was to be commanded by Munich, and his main task was to take on and defeat the Crimean Tatars in their backyard, a move which satisfied Ernst Biron, who, for purely personal reasons, he hated Munich and was jealous of his successful campaign in Poland, was glad to get him away from St. Petersburg and the Empress. A bit further to the east, the smaller Russian Don army, of around 30,000 men, commanded by Lacey, was to strike and capture a place that the Russians and Turks had fought over for years and which had changed hands on numerous occasions, Azov. Throughout the spring, both armies were assembled and provisioned, and by May 1736, both were positioned and ready to attack their targets. The Dnieper, or Western Army, under Munich, struck first, successfully stormed the Tatar fortifications at Perakop, the gateway to northern Crimea, Crimea and then in June, Bakhchisarai, the Crimean, Crimean capital, was attacked and captured and the two Khans of Crimea, Kaplan Giray and Fatir Giray, were forced to escape and flee south across the Black Sea to Istanbul. At more or less the same time, Lacey's Don, or Eastern Army, together with Russian naval support, was able to capture Azov. Now there's an alternative version of events, doesn't there always seem to be, in that some sources suggest that it was Munich's force that captured Azov, and Lacey's that did the same in Bakhchisarai. Either way, it seemed that once again, the Russian army had on the surface performed well. However, these two victories served to paper over a number of cracks. The provisioning of the armies had been badly handled, and by the July, both were starting to suffer from a lack of basic provisions. Plus, the success had gone to Munich's head, he wrote to Anna and Osterman, overstating the position, and then, then made gung-ho promises about going on to capture Istanbul. Some of the generals in the Dnieper army took a more sanguine view of both recent events and future possibilities, 
and they sent their own dispatches back to Petersburg, which suggested that the army was at breaking point. When Anna and Biron received the news, they wrote back to Munich, telling him, in effect, to calm down and have a think about things, which Munich promptly did by threatening to resign. Anna was having none of it, though, and she reprimanded the field marshal and told him in no uncertain terms that he was staying in position and that he'd better put things right. And Anna later wrote to Ostermann, telling him that Munich's behaviour was unacceptable and that his long-term aim of capturing Istanbul was unrealistic, before going on to ask her foreign minister what his ideas were in terms of next steps. Now the problem was that Ostermann wasn't entirely sure. The key aims of the campaign had been fulfilled. Azov was back in Russian hands, the Crimean raids had been stopped, and the Ottoman Sultan, Mahmoud I, had deposed the two Crimean Tatar Khans, effectively relieving them of their duties. Luckily though for Ostermann, it was now late in the year. The campaigning season was effectively over, and he was therefore able to spend most of the winter coming up with new, albeit limited, plans for the following year, which were to secure and protect Crimea and Azov from expected Ottoman attacks. In 1737, though, things started to unravel. The year started well with further gains for the Russians in Crimea and got better with the news that the Austrians were joining the war on the Russian side. However, and this is a bad however for two reasons. Firstly, the underlying problems of supply and logistics had never really gone away and then later in the summer disaster struck in the form of an outbreak of the plague. Now we're not told if this occurrence of the plague was a localised recurrence of the actual Black Death, which it probably was, or some kind of generic fever, which it possibly could have been. And regarding the Black Death, which scientists believe was caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, I say probably because even though there was no repeat of the pandemic that had occurred in the mid-1300s, in the ensuing centuries there had been numerous smaller and short-lived outbreaks of the disease in Europe, North Africa and the Middle East, typically in areas of large or dense population where people lived in unsanitary conditions or just happened to be serving in a large army. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But whatever the cause, Russian troops were soon dying in droves. 
and this event, coupled with the general lack of supplies, was serious enough for Munich to cut his losses and retreat northwards back into Ukraine. And then secondly, the Austrian campaign against the Ottomans started badly and went rapidly downhill from there, and that's being kind. Over a three-year period, the Habsburgs, who seemed to have entered the war with high expectations of making further territorial gains in the Balkans, made next to no progress, lost pretty much every battle that they fought, and then in 1739 had to surrender the city of Belgrade. Back over on the Russian front, nothing much happened in 1738, but in spring 1739, with the plague seemingly over, the Russians regrouped. Anna and Osterman had decided that the war against the Ottomans needed a new direction and further momentum, and so they shifted the main focus away from the southern border across to the southwest, with a Munich-led invasion of modern-day southern Ukraine, Moldova and northern Romania. Reinvigorated and re-energised after practically 18 months off, Munich crossed the Dnieper into Ottoman territory, defeated a Turkish army at Stavuchani, and captured the important fortress of Khotin, but then his progress stalled. Back in St. Petersburg, the Empress and her Foreign Secretary had started to realise that the risk-reward ratio was, both now and in the long term, more skewed towards risk. Munich's army was stalled, Austrian defeats kept piling up, and then there was the alarming news that the Ottomans were trying to put together an alliance with Sweden, Poland and Prussia, which, if true, and if realised, would pose a threat to Russia's western borderlands, which it would end up doing so, but not for a couple of years. The Austrians, who couldn't get out of the war fast enough, made the first moves to try and broker a peace deal, and by September 1739, all three parties were ready to call it a day, and two separate treaties were signed. The first, between the Ottomans and Austria, ceded northern Serbia and northern Bosnia to the Turks, and the second, between the Ottomans and Russia, saw Azov and parts of southeastern Ukraine move across to the Russian side of the fence, whilst the Sultan kept hold of Crimea and the territories that Munich had occupied in his final campaign. And so another war had ended. Thousands of lives had been lost, and for what gain? Well, for Austria, nothing. And what made it worse was the embarrassing nature of its defeat, something no doubt that Bourbon France and the rest of Europe had made a careful note of. The Ottomans came out of the war with a couple of pluses. Territory gained in the Balkans and Crimea retained. The loss of Azov and southern Ukraine to the Russians were setbacks, but all in all, the Turks could be satisfied both with their performance and the outcome. For Russia, the aims of the war had been twofold. Get hold of Azov, done, and stop the Crimean Tatars from raiding their territory. Hmm, sort of, because with Crimea still in Ottoman stroke Tatar hands, further raids were a distinct possibility. And indeed, later in the 18th century, they would start up again. But the consensus, both at home and abroad, was that Russia's military had emerged from the war with its reputation intact and perhaps even enhanced. 
Spare a thought, though, for those thousands that have died either in battle or from disease and their families, or those that have been tortured and exiled, or the serfs, because I'm not sure they looked upon things in quite the same way. But all of that looks at things from a purely military perspective. So what we're going to do for the rest of this episode is spend a bit of time looking at activities closer to home and investigating Anna's ambitions and priorities in terms of science, culture and society. We've mentioned before that in terms of an overall plan or vision, Anna's number one priority was to continue along the same westernising path as Peter the Great. In practice, however, she would end up going about things in a slower, calmer, less intense and more roundabout way, probably because she was less risk-averse than her uncle and almost certainly less driven. She didn't always get things right and was often accused of either continuing or finishing off Peter's initiatives and projects rather than coming up with original ideas of her own. And sometimes she ended up, either by design or accident, going in a completely opposite direction. But unlike the three previous Russian leaders, if you include Menshikov, at least she tried to do something. For example, in St. Petersburg, which had been practically ignored for the past seven or eight years, she completed the building of a number of canals that had been started by Peter, and then, of course, there was her new palace. The Winter Palace, which was the fourth iteration of a royal residence in St. Petersburg, and which had used the ex-admiral Fyodor Apraxin's residence as its core, was started in 1732, and from 1734-ish through to 1917, it served as the official residence of the Romanovs and the home of the Imperial Russian court. Today, as part of one of the world's best-known museums, the Hermitage, the palace attracts around 4 million visitors a year, or at least it used to. Anna wanted the Winter Palace to project or present Russia in two different but complementary ways. First, as a mighty and powerful empire, and secondly, as an enlightened, forward-thinking European state. And so it was built on a monumental scale, with 1,500 rooms, all of the furniture and furnishings were imported from France and Italy, and guests and dignitaries were served champagne instead of vodka by courtiers dressed in the latest European style. Another of Anna's priorities was army reform, but rather than just reshape or rehash what was currently there, the Empress realised that a longer-term solution was necessary, and so in 1731 she set up an elite officer training school. This school, known as the Cadet Corps, took in sons of the nobility from the age of eight and taught them everything that they needed to know to become accomplished officers within the Russian army. The Empress also made sure that St. Petersburg's Russian Academy of Science, founded by Peter the Great in 1724, continued to receive state funding. Plus, she made changes to the curriculum, introducing arts-based subjects such as architecture, journalism and engraving. But some of Anna's initiatives were less enlightened. As previously mentioned, the Secret Office of Investigation, aka Usikov's Secret Police, 
kept a close watch on anybody who the empress deemed to be a threat, and by the late 1830s, the list had grown to around 18,000 names. And in the next episode, we'll be taking a look at what happened to some of those who were near the top of that list. However, to keep the majority of the nobles and aristocracy on side, there was carrot as well as stick. Anna relaxed the rules around primogeniture, reintroducing the ability of rich landowners to divide their estates amongst multiple heirs, and she shortened the amount of time that nobles had to provide in terms of service to the state. On the flip side, she introduced a law that made landlords responsible for the taxes of their serfs, which resulted in speedier and more efficient revenue collection, but further oppression and hardship for those at the bottom of the pile, as the state had been somewhat relaxed since Peter the Great's time in chasing up serfs who hadn't paid what they owed. And then finally, in either 1739 or 1740, the Office for the Affairs of New Converts was established. Located in Kazan, the main aim of this body was to convert, sometimes forcibly, Muslims and pagans to the Orthodox faith. Okay, that's where we'll leave things for this week. Next time, we'll be tackling Anna's other pressing priority the provision of a Miloslavsky Romanov heir, mainly because by late 1738, Anna wasn't getting any younger, Elizabeth Petrovna was still as annoyingly popular as ever, and crucially, her niece Anna Leopoldovna was still unmarried, and the relationship between her and Antony Ulrich of Brunswick, yeah, he's still around, was, well, how can I put this, lukewarm at best and complicated by young Anna's affections for somebody else. Plus, we'll be taking a look at who's who in terms of Anna's chief ministers, advisers and confidant. Plus, as mentioned a bit earlier, we'll be checking in with a group of people who, for most of the 1730s, had been high on Ushakov's list and languishing in Siberian and Arctic exile. Yup, the Dolgorukis are back. So, until then, dear listeners, take it easy, keep your chin up, and most importantly, and as always, stay safe. Oh, and whilst I'm away, bear this piece of advice from the Roman Emperor and famed Stoic Marcus Aurelius in mind. And this is my Marcus Aurelius voice. The best revenge is to be unlike the person who performed the injury. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.